Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Congress brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. It has Jordan. Allen shakes free. Gets two! to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry. Hello, and welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast at HarborProxism.com. I am Jason Mann, and uh, Rich couldn't be with us uh, this week, but uh, he'll be back soon. But we have an uh, outstanding guest. Uh, he is the author of the book uh, Rise and Fire. Sean Fury, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me, Jason. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about... Uh, we're going to tie in a little bit of conversation, continuing our WrestleMania series on Bill Russell. Talk about the ways that he helped uh, reshape and uh, evolve the game uh, and how he kind of fed the Celtics and the ways they sort of shaped the game. And I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit about, you know, your book and, and what you kind of found there, particularly in jump shooting and in the ways that um, – that of course greatly changed the game during um, Russell's uh, time in the fifties and the sixties, and then some of the you know the players that really stand out as stylistic innovators or you know interesting personalities that um, that we found through our research that we just want to talk about. So we're gonna we're gonna go a lot of places, but uh, it should be fun. So uh, first, maybe talk a little bit about uh, Rise and Fire. Um, you know what what led you to decide to write the book and and, and some interesting things that you found. Oh, what led me to it is, I mean, first of all, just a love of basketball, lifelong love of basketball. If And I think I can call it that if, you know, starting at the age of four or so <laughs> that I can remember, uh, I consider that lifelong. And it's always it was always my favorite sport growing up, playing it in school, playing a couple years of junior college. And then when I started writing in newspapers, you know, high school games were my favorite thing to cover, college games. I mean, it's just always been my first love. And, and the NBA, uh, growing up in the 80s um, as a Showtime Lakers fan. My dad 
I grew up in Minnesota, so my dad had been a Minneapolis Lakers fan, stayed loyal when they moved to Los Angeles. So him and his brothers were big Lakers fans, and that was kind of passed on to me. So then, you know, the last 10 years or so, I'd really been wanting to write some type of basketball book. Obviously, I've read a million basketball books, um, whether it's on teams or players or decades or leagues, uh, ABA, NBA, whatever it is. And then finally, I, you know, I came upon this idea and, you know, this sounds kind of corny and unbelievable, but I, I had a dream about five or six years ago and it was one of my normal basketball dreams that I have every week. And in the dream, I just had the thought, you know, write a book about the jump shot. And it was something I woke up, I scribbled it down, you know, my notebook next to my bed, didn't think anything of it. But as time passed and I, I started thinking, yeah, I've always enjoyed nonfiction books, not sports ones, but nonfiction books that take one topic and then kind of expand on a bigger history and salt kind of being one of the more famous ones. I just saw one uh, this week called hair, the <laughs> history of hair in the world. So things like that, where you could just take one thing and then expand on it. And as I revisited the idea about the jump shot, it really seemed like something as I researched it, obviously I knew some of the history of it, but not a lot. And I could just, you could really see how the game itself changed from the time it came in, starting you know, kind of in the mid-1930s, and each passing decade, as the game was evolving, the jump shot was really a driving force behind that. And obviously today with the dominance of the three-pointer. So as I, as I researched it further and I thought, you know, this could be that thing where I can write about one thing, the jump shot, but really talk a lot about basketball history. That really appealed to me. And then it was just a matter of finding, you know, a narrative that, that could be kind of strung together. And then along with the book throughout, um, for those who have read it, though, you know, no, I kind of take some detours and side trips here and there to different players, different parts of the country. Um, but everything's kind of focused on that jump shot and how throughout basketball history, it's really been a driving force in how the game changed. Yeah, and it's a it's a really enjoyable book. Uh, you know, really uh, dug into it and really enjoyed just kind of seeing the, um, you know, one thing that you do a nice job of is kind of tracing how basketball sort of evolved like in different regions of the country i mean you know up until really probably the um the 50s you know the the 40s or 50s the the you know, teams weren't really playing each other that much outside of their own area so you know slowly as you know basketball kind of grew in you know high schools and colleges in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s before the war um you know there, there's definitely very distinct styles that are kind of developing yeah. in different regions and then they kind of all start to come together as you know the nation starts to you know, travel is easier and college basketball starts to pick up in popularity and teams are starting to travel to play each other so i i found that really fascinating and you know as you were saying that it just kind of hit me and i guess i hadn't tied together with my book before but in a way we kind of still have those that idea of different styles don't we with Especially in the NBA, it's always, I think, West Coast teams are kind of thought of these offensive teams. East Coast, the grinded out, you know, whether that dates back to the, the 80s with the Celtics, Lakers, and their distinct styles. But it just kind of struck me that we still kind of have these ideas about different parts of the country playing different ways. Even though, like you said, back so in the 30s and 40s, when these teams from the East were never going to play a team from the West, you had very distinct styles and the regions really took pride in how they played. And when the jump shot, um, Hank Lucetti, who, as I write, didn't really maybe shoot a jump shot, but he had the, the one-hander. 
And when he came to the East Coast, you had all these East Coast people, establishments saying, you know, that's how they play ball on the West Coast. That's never going to work here. And it was just something that each part of the country kind of had their own guys who shot the jump shot, but it had not spread really at all. So each area had, you know, their jump shooter or jump shooters, but those guys didn't really know about each other. They were kind of, you know, isolated in their own parts of the country. So like I said, it took until a lot of them met um, when they were serving in World War II. Uh, two of them, Kenny Sayers and Joe Folks, that I, I write about, actually played on a really, really good Marine team uh, that won undefeated over like a year and a half. So then you kind of finally had these players coming together. And then I think as you go into the late 40s and 50s, you kind of see basketball starting to develop an overall style where obviously everyone's now going to be start shooting the jump shot and it kind of becomes a more coherent thing. But even today, 60 years later, you do kind of have those different styles. Yeah. And you still have um, a lot of controversy over like, what is a good shot in the NBA? Um, you know, the, the, the three pointer has really taken hold over the last um uh, you know, 10 years, the just the increase of the amount of three-point shots. Of course, three-point shot has been around for much longer than that. But um, that has – there's a big division in sort of the schools of not just like what is – you know, what is better as far as winning goes, but there's also the idea of what is more, you know, what is better for the game, what is more enjoyable to watch, what is more authentically basketball, whatever that kind of means. Yeah, and obviously, you know, efficiency has become a big thing. And one one section of the book that I really enjoyed was the guys in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, who were anything but efficient. They, they were They would shoot 45, 50 times a game. But to me, that's just as much fun as to watch as someone making 12 or 15 shots. You know, I think it's, you know, to me, I, the, the quote unquote right way to play the game, I, as just a fan, I just enjoy always of watching the game, whether it's certainly a fast paced game, high scoring is, is what I enjoy most, but it is fun to see different types, especially if they're going against each other. And I think today's game, like I said, the three pointer, it's interesting the way the three pointer, Today, the long two, you know, that's kind of the most hated shot in basketball. And it's kind of talked about in the same terms that people talked about the three-pointer when that came into the game in the 80s, whether it was the NBA or college. It was a shot that coaches, you know, the ones who didn't like the shot really disliked. They used vulgar terms to describe it. And now the only shot that kind of brings up those types of emotions is the long two. So it's, it's really fascinating how the game has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you you brought up um, Kenny Sailors and uh, Joe Folks and I, and uh, Kenny Sailors who who just uh, died um, a couple months ago. Um, he, he, you know, he, he was written a lot about, of course, because you know, really being a trailblazer for um, for jump shooting at the University of Wyoming, really University of Wyoming, excuse me, getting uh, national attention in 1943. And then, you know, he goes to the NBA uh, a few years later um, as the NBA is its origins, really still the BAA. Um, and yeah. uh, he and Joe Folks both um, really have to battle to kind of gain acceptance as far as how they play, uh, sailors especially. I mean, Folks had decent amount of success at um, 
you know, for the Warriors, led them to a championship, and um, you know they they were a pretty top team there. He was pretty celebrated, but Sailors had a a tougher time in the NBA, and it came from you know uh, you know entrenched ideas of that you know you that's just not the right right way to play, and it you know led to kind of him not really having necessarily much of a um, NBA career. Yeah, and that's you know those early guys. You you look back at their stats. You know, you know you can get lost on Basketball Reference just looking at some of these guys' stats, and their careers would be so short in many cases. And obviously, so much played into that. The league obviously was absolutely nothing like it is today. Salaries, they could make more money. You know, getting regular jobs, um, injuries. You know, a bad injury could could end your career pretty easily back then. And I think Kenny had kind of always. You know, bother him a little bit that he didn't have more of a career in the early NBA, and that also might have affected how you know it took many decades after that before people kind of revisited his influence on the game. I think part of that was because he had such a short. He had a couple, you know, really solid years, but nothing you know like Joe did. Uh, like I said, leading the Warriors um, to the championship and setting, you know, scoring sixty three points in one game, which was a record that lasted a decade and it didn't it was finally broken when Elgin and Wilt finally came into the league but after he said it people were talking whether anyone could ever break this record this you know jump shooting maniac with his two hands above his head really changed the game but it took you know it took even more years I think for him to kind of be recognized for his influence and unfortunately he died very early so these guys kind of oh, those early years really get lost to history and that was one thing I, I enjoyed about the book is hopefully you know bringing some of these guys back to the forefront and there's been a lot of other whether it's authors or documentary guys who, who are doing work like that as well and I, unfortunately it seems like basketball I think you would you know probably agree with this that unfortunately early basketball history just isn't as relevant, I guess, as the other sports when you think about baseball history. Everyone can name guys from the 20s and 30s and 40s, even football, uh, boxing. But basketball history really doesn't have that same influence. So hopefully, uh, you know, being able to write about some of these guys and us talking about them kind of gets them back into the public's view. Yeah, it, yeah, just, uh, you know, wasn't entrenched in the culture at the time. So, it you know, it doesn't create those same memories in as many people and, you know, wasn't covered as heavily and, and all that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it, it's fun to, in your book, obviously, uh, yeah, I think does a really nice job bringing up some names of guys that I, you know, either hadn't heard of or didn't know much about and, you know, just giving you um, a, a sense of, um the progression of the game and, and the changes that were made and, you know, kind of some of the exciting players that, um, you know, aren't, aren't talked about all the time. So, uh, definitely applaud you for that. Uh, so, um, so talking about, uh, you know, it's a few years, uh, later in, um, 1956 when Bill Russell is drafted into the league and he's already so, somewhat revolutionized the game as a, a college player, um, you know, his University of San Francisco team had a 55 game winning streak and was just, you know, considered the, you know, the dominant, um, uh, the, the, you know, the greatest team in college basketball history. Um, he comes into the NBA and, uh, people aren't sure what to make of him. He doesn't really have the ability to shoot, but clearly he's, you know, on these teams and, um, and his incredible defense, but the way that he played defense was even more revolutionary than some of the jump shooters, because 
you know, it might have been it might have been, uh, been considered bad in some circles to leave your feet on offense, but it was an absolute cardinal sin to do it on defense. And Russell did that, turning the block shot into a tremendous weapon and really being the first, um, you know, in basketball history to do that on any kind of significant level. Yeah, and it's I think you can still see that influence today because how many times will you be watching a game today? And obviously, neither of us ever had the chance to watch Russell play live. You know, we can go back and watch clips and stuff. But how many times today will you see somebody block a shot and maybe send it into the fourth row or whatever? And the announcer will say, you know, Bill Russell, what made him great was he was able to block a shot, but keep it in play so often and set up his team on offense. And so his influence still 50 years later and the way he played defensively, not just the physical skills, like you said, leaving the court, but also the just the basketball genius that he had on that on the defensive end where obviously he was a great basketball mind on the court, but just you know, not a little thing I guess, but just a thing like that where he he was so well known for rejecting a shot but also making it sure where his team would gain possession and this that kind of impact I think just speaks volumes to the way he altered the game and you know, like I said, he he did it it, that's what makes you know you guys have talked about this the Russell Chamberlain rivalry so fascinating is because you had greatest offensive force ever greatest defensive force ever and to have those two guys come along at the same time is is just incredible yeah um and um and you know it, it was really like one thing that I um reading several books about Russell and, and second wind is um, autobiography second autobiography written in the late 70s is um, that he, he just really looked to kind of find the joy in the game and he thought you know jumping is really fun like jumping is he says he calls jumping high is one of the purest pleasures I know for an athlete like he wanted yeah. to have fun playing the game he wanted to win and he wanted to um understand what um was going on but you know he he talked about at his high school and this was kind of before really he was not a particularly good high school player he didn't really develop his game until after high school he, he kind of um lucked his way into a, a touring all-star um high school team and would play against other all-stars from other schools and he would just sort of um or from other areas and he would uh just started to something clicked with him and he sort of started to under be able to picture um what to do in his mind able to able to emulate other people's moves and realize that he could do it and then even even more so was able to realize he could copy other people's moves and start playing defense being left-handed helped him out that because he could eat more easily yeah. block a right-handed um player's shot and, and get a steal and so forth but you know he talked about um you know, he, he we, we never in high school, we never jumped on defense. But we love to go up in the air on offense. It was more fun and it worked. And it was sort of considered playground or Negro basketball at the time. But it was, um, you know, obviously it was going to very soon um, change the entire dimensions of um, of the NBA starting with when Russell would come into the league. And you, know, you talk that word joy, I think, is a great one that you use because a book that I read during the research for mine um, called Jump for Joy by Gina Capone Tabari, if, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Um, it's, it's just a, a great study of, um, it focuses on jazz uh, and basketball, uh, kind of focused on in the 1930s. 
and she writes a lot about how she writes. Uh, she has a segment on the jump shot herself, and then also talks about the unfortunate thing is that during those years, there very well might have been many black players shooting jump shots, but whether because they didn't have the media covering them, we don't know their names, but also because that was that was kind of the way you know. It wasn't an anomaly for them. It was a lot of times it was the way they played it, you know, whether it was on the barnstorming tour or wherever. So they weren't thinking how strange it was. Although she does write how, you know, even the jump shot did, it, it could still kind of look different. And that's why nobody really knew if, if that's what they were shooting. But they, just that joy that that action brought, you know, jumping off the court and to do it defensively um, and to do it as not just to jump, but to have that timing that Russell had, you know, always being once somehow, you know, the offense is always supposed to be one step ahead of the defense, but somehow with Russell, he he always seemed to be one step ahead of the offense, even whether he was leaving his feet. So the way he was able to combine his physical skills, his mental toughness, obviously legendary, but also that passion for the game, that joy, that excitement that he brought to it, that combination is really, you know, what made him special. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, the other thing, and, and this kind of keys into how the Celtics helped change the game um, on defense was his ability to be able to uh, rotate and cover, um, uh, you know, f- for his teammates, the um, it was known as the hay bill uh, defense of the Celtics, if you know, a guy if if a koozie got passed up, he'd yell, hey, Bill, and, you know, Bill would sort of cover his mistake, just basically rotating and being able to, um, you know, anybody who goes to the basket, Russell's there to protect the basket, and, and he had, you know, um, extraordinary quickness and timing and um, and intelligence, obviously, underst- understanding the game of the men, uh, understanding the game, understanding the geometry of the game, and in rebounding, you know, um, considering, you know, horizontal and vertical distances, looking at how many rebounds were caught at or below the basket, which I think he said like two thirds of them were, you know, could have really been rebounded by anybody. Then didn't necessarily, you didn't necessarily have to jump the highest um, to do it. You just had to understand the timing and where it would go. Um, and he talks about him, you know, throughout this process as he's, um, you know, developing after his high school career and into t- and into uh, San Francisco with Casey Jones of just like you know spending hours just you know um, thinking about it and also you know talking to people who who he was close to and just kind of understanding like how he could um, adjust to the game and just spending so much time um, you know not just practicing but you know mentally thinking of where he could like um, break barriers. Um, there's a, a quote from Second Wind: um, "The accomplishments I'm." proudest of are the innovations i help introduce in the way the game is played today block shots active rather than passive defense and ideas about the horizontal uh, geometry around the basket and um and it kind of sums up what we were what some of the things we've been talking about but really you know the thing that um in addition to the defense the thing that um i i think the russell and the celtics helped um usher in was uh an incredibly faster pace of the nba and, and it was already heading toward that way when um you know after the shot clock was introduced in um yeah. 1954 but it really turned on its head once the celtics um you know started to use the fast break so much which hadn't really taken hold in the program that much um and really started to uh 
ramp up the pace of the game. It just, you know, it, it obviously shot up monstrously, um, you know, from the uh, late 50s into the early to mid 60s. Yeah, and uh, as, as I have it on my mind, I want to revisit one other idea, too, with Russell. Sure. You talk about just kind of how revolutionary he was. And in my book, I, there's a quote from Fog Allen. He was concerned about in the 30s and 40s how tall players were really taking over the game. And one thing he advocated was a taller basket to take away some of their advantage. But the memorable phrase he used was glandular goons um, and tall, tall freaks yes. to describe these guys. And in his mind, the problem wasn't, you know, a player who had some skill. It was that there were so many tall guys who just were tall and they didn't. That was their number one skill. They didn't necessarily bring anything else to the game. And then you get Russell in the you know mid to late 50s. He, he emerges and then obviously through the 60s and just a totally different and Wilt as well, obviously tall guys, but you know, freaks in the sense that they were great basketball players as well. It's, it's not that their number one skill was just being tall. So that, that's another thing that um, I think Russell definitely deserves a lot of credit for as far as being just this revolutionary figure in the game. Um, and then you talk about the pace and it, it is just fascinating. Again, going, if you go back and look at the stats of team team scoring in the NBA, and certainly like you said, after the shot clock comes in, the Celtics were the first team to average over 100 after that. And then it just keeps steadily going up and up until there's one season in the early 60s. Um, I think there were like three or four teams that averaged over 120 you know, in an eight-team league. And it just skyrocketed. And the great thing about the Celtics, of course, was that they were able to play that style. Um, again, I remember in the 80s, if a team took the ball out of the basket after the opponent made a hoop, and threw it down court and had a fast break, which the Lakers and Celtics both did very well in the 80s, they would always talk about Russell Celtics and how good they were at scoring after an opponent's basket. So they had the offensive pace, but of course what made them so good, even though they, you know, there were a couple times they led the league in scoring, but even if they were second or third, is the fact that their defense was so far ahead of their time in that era, where obviously they were giving up what now would be considered a lot of points, but some of those years it would be five points per game, you know, less than the next best team. And so that combination they had of amazing offense, great pace, the famous Celtics fast break ignited by Russell's blocks and rebounds. But then you Pavlicek, Sam Jones, all the guys on offense, that combination is, I mean, there's a reason they won as much as they did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and and really, um, yeah, the the um, between fifty seven and fifty seven um, teams averaged ninety nine point six points per game and a th- and a thirty eight percent from the field in sixty two that went to one hundred nineteen point eight points per game, so almost one hundred twenty and um, forty two point six percent from the field. So. Yeah, that's a dramatic increase in um, yeah. in both areas, and yeah, I mean the shooters were also getting better. They, you know, the the jump shot was helping. You know, you you could you could make a jump shot uh, more easily than than a set shot because it was harder to block, and um, and, and so people were understanding at least a little bit. You know, what were better shots, and um, and that was helping. You know, lead kind of the offensive uh, revolution as well. Although I, I do think it was it was more of a pace revolution than a like a you know 
more efficient offense um, revolution, but obviously the, the field goal percentages uh, certainly were making the, the game more enjoyable to watch, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there was a yeah, lot of... By the early... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, there was a lot of angst about the, the, the changes to the game, and you do a nice job of bringing that up several times in your book where... Uh, just kind of the reaction to how, um, you know, people at the time felt like the game was being destroyed by um, by these changes. And yet, um, you know, of, co- of course, not now we look at that and, and think it's silly, but there are just so many times where, um, you know, where, where there's like a fear of um, how things there's there's one uh, quote from uh from writer John McAfee in 62, where his his feeling for basketball has faded to almost to nothing. The game seemed to me to have lost its balance as players became taller and more powerful with few patterns of attack and almost no defense. The players, in a sense, had gotten better than the game by taking the skill out of basketball. And there's a lot of things of, like, a lot of issues with the jump shot of, like, okay, one guy can now, you know, basically create his own shot. There's no, you know, the it loses the whole, you know, the, the give and goes and, you know, the, the passing and moving yeah. to be able to kind of get the better shot. And we, you know, we see kind of some of those um, arguments in different forms today. Yeah. And one of the guys I, I quote in my book, Jimmy Breslin, a famous New York city newspaper writer in his later life, but then was a, a young sports writer. And he wrote that the jump shot is ruining basketball. It's these guys shoot like they're coming out of a laboratory um, and one of his colleagues wrote a very similar column. And this was in the late 50s. Um, offense had increased tremendously, and they, they thought it was too easy. And it just made the game look too easy. And that, you quote, the patterned offenses, that's an interesting one because that was a concern of those guys a few years earlier, too, that you no longer had these intricate offenses that had weaves and constant passing. One guy now could just rise above everyone and knock it in. And it is, you mentioned on Twitter how every, I guess every 10 years or so, basketball is always being ruined. And fortunately, it keeps going and keeps going very well. But it's just it's just fascinating when I was going back and finding some of those old quotes, including maybe the more, most surprising one to me was Bob Cousy um, lamenting at the time of his retirement, a month before he retired in 63, that the jump shot was the worst thing to happen to basketball in the past 10 years. And his his comment was he didn't like that guys went in the air and made a lot of mistakes. He, he thought they were better on the ground, but it was still a weird, very weird hearing it from him. This you know passing ball handling wizard, who also played with Bill Sharman, one of the great jump shooters who helped him win several titles. So it, it was really interesting reading these old quotes from guys. But like you said, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, what are they talking about? But it, it, when you think about how we're having those arguments today. In 50 years, people will, might be looking back at our, our arguments and saying, well, you know, what were they talk, talking about? So you really have to remember what, you know, what the time was and how the game was changing back then. Sure, absolutely. And, um, yeah, I, I guess maybe the reason uh, Kuzi didn't like jump shooters is because he couldn't shoot. It would be but, but, yeah, <laughs> one of my guesses, answer. but yes. But yeah, um, yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, bringing up Charmin, um, there's, there's, um, I mean, he really is. He's, he's kind of the forgotten, um, awesome player in um, that Celtics dynasty. I mean, um, you know, obviously Russell is celebrated, um, and, and Kuzi is celebrated, but I mean, Charmin really was a guy who carried a, uh, you know, was 
just you know, kind of the, the the best shooter of his day was just an incredible shooting guard who just you know fought fought um, around screens and you know would get open shots and um, was just um, you know it, it was a trailblazer in physical fitness and you know the some of the quotes about him Jack McMahon of the Hawks who faced him in the uh, fifty seven and fifty eight finals. Um, basically said, you know, he never lets up for a second. Never mind about it, the shooting. How about his guts? He's a great competitor, as great as I've ever seen. Um, yeah. From It's from Rise of a Dynasty by Bill Reynolds. And um, and also, Sharman, you didn't really like the whole, like, denigrating of the idea of a shooter. Like, he, a quote of his is, I'm a shooter. A shooter is paid to shoot. He helps his team by shooting and then compares himself next to us. So, and then says, does he say to, to one of us, I'll take this, this rebound and you take the next? So just kind of the idea of like, hey, I, you know, I shoot because I'm, that's what I do in this, um, you know, this Celtics machine where it's kind of, you know, all these different parts working together to, you know, make the, uh, make the engine run smoothly. Yeah, that, that quote you just read was one of my favorites that I found from him and one of the favorites in the whole book, really, because it really does give you know, that power to shooters that they have that this is a great skill to have and that you're really hurting the team in a way you're not utilizing that skill and the way he compared it to Russell's role on the team, which again is also what made the Celtics so good is that they had each player was so good in what they did while not worrying, not being concerned about stats necessarily. I don't think Russell, you know, cared if he got 40 rebounds but he did get 40 rebounds and Sharman I don't think cared that he averaged 20 but that's what he did because each guy just knew what they had to do and his role was was to shoot and it was really fun reading stories too about you know after he retired as a player and became a coach he, he was definitely regarded as this very gentlemanly figure in the game after he passed away he had all these stories about all these letters he wrote and when I visited the hall of fame and looked through his file they had several handwritten letters that he had written to the hall of fame just just the sweetest you know notes to people thanking them for something but then you read these courts of when he played and he was a very very competitive guy and he got into several fist fights which you know much more common back then of course but right. he would challenge big guys little guys uh very competitive and i think that also of course helped him fit in perfectly with that era celtics yeah yeah um, one, um, story that I like about, for, uh, regarding Russell is, um, and, and turning the block shot into an accepted part of the NBA was just a, um, like early on, um, in his first season, you know, he joins uh, about a third of the way into the season after playing the Olympics and he's, he's facing up against, um, Neil Johnston, who is like this, he, he he's actually really effective, um, player, uh, for, Philly, who had won the the championship in '56, the the, the previous season, yeah. so so they were a you know they were a standout team. They had, they also had um, Paul Arizon and um, you know a a good team, but you know, he was slower. He was less athletic, um, and you know basically just you know with Russell going up against him and it just being such a complete domination of Russell, just completely blocking shot after shot against him and just almost like destroying his confidence completely. And it just, you know, it just stands out as heralding of what, okay, this is the old, this is what the old big man did. And this is what the new big man is going to do. And just, you know, it, it, it couldn't, 
hardly be any more starker than the, the, than that illustration very, very soon into Russell's career would be. And I just think of, I mentioned my dad and his brothers were big Lakers fans. And when I was a kid and I you know asked my dad about those old Celtics Lakers series in the sixties and he still, you know, I was 15, 20 years later would be lamenting, you know, Elgin Baylor was his idol. And then obviously they had Jerry Weston too. And those two, two of the all time greats, but he would always, he would still be shaking his head in the eighties about, you know, Lakers at center. Just, there was nothing. They had no one that could compare to Russell. And yeah. he would, you know, name some of the names that they had. And it was like, they were complaining, playing a completely different sport at that time until obviously the Lakers got Chamberlain. But before that, it was just Russell was so ahead of the game, especially against when they would face the Lakers in the finals that even 20 years later, it was uh, still bothering Lakers fans. I can testify to that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you um, when you brought up the 80s, there's one thing I wanted to mention that I thought was interesting is, is you know, the uh, of course, the the Celtics turning up the pace was a, you know, was a, a winning strategy at that point. And then in the 80s as well, the the Celtics and the Lakers were both running teams, but at some point like running kind of became like, um, like a, a bad strategic thing. Like team, you know, the game obviously slowed down quite a bit and the teams that were playing the slowest started to win a lot in the nineties and, um, and, and 2000. And it's interesting because I remember, um, there's a quote from bird. This is maybe 80, 87, 88-ish, or, you know, kind of after the, the peak of the dynasty, but they're still, you know, incredibly relevant talking about like, Hey, you know, we, we need to get out there and run like, you know, teams that play teams that are good, um, run and play hard. It makes your offense easier. And I just kind of thought like for a while, basketball sort of lost that whole, the idea behind like running can be effective and running can be a winning strategy. I think, you know, in in the last few years now that we've, you know, gotten the Warriors and, and seven seconds or less uh, Suns and yeah. uh, the Spurs kind of embracing that and turning into their own identity. Um, I, I think we have, um, you know, a, a better, faster, more, you know, intricate game with more passing than we did kind of in a more isolation heavy era. And I think it's kind of more uh resembles kind of the the game at its aesthetic peak yeah it kind of shows i guess how everything kind of cycles back eventually so maybe in 20 years we'll be back to isolation balls maybe and not not, not that isolation ball is terrible you know it's fun sometimes yeah Yeah, i I like your idea that like all these different styles can kind of work and in bonds off each other and all that i just think it's when you know the the game is bought where every team is kind of doing it that way and you know there's um uh, you know, n- not as much, uh, not as much speed, not as much passing. I, I, that, that is less appealing to me. Yeah. And to me, it, it was always frustrating watching some of those, obviously the nineties, especially is kind of when that was at its peak, but e- even after that, and you'd hear people talk about, and certainly, you know, defensive concepts have advanced tremendously and scouting and everything, the analytics that goes into defense now makes it harder to do certain things. But I always got, a little frustrated part of it was because I was certainly as a fan of the Showtime Lakers, very devoted to them even years later. But when people would say, well, you, you can never fast break like that in today's game. It just wouldn't happen. And to me, that didn't make much sense because running as a, you know, and that kind of style of offense, a lot of it is just a mindset and just deciding to do it. 
you know, there's you can grab a rebound and just hand it to a guy, and that point guard can walk the ball up. That's a way to play the game, but that's a mindset where if you decide, okay, we are going to run, we're going to be aggressive, we're going to get that rebound and look for an outlet like you would see so often in the 80s or today finally where you see that aggressiveness and it, it doesn't have to be played, you know, just because defense has advanced, it always frustrated me because I didn't think that it meant you could only walk the ball up and wait for the coach to call a play. I always thought you could still, that there'd be room for that. And certainly the fast break today doesn't look the same as it did in the eighties because teams, you know, the guys will flare out to the three point line or whatever, Right. but just playing that, that pace. And like you said, the passing and just aesthetically, it's so much more pleasing that it's exciting to see. And I'm, I'm glad that what, whether, you know, D'Antoni sons deserve some credit for that, where, he kind of showed that you could play this way. And obviously today with the Warriors leading the way, but other teams, it's just nice to see that if a team decides to play like that, they could play like that. And it gives me hope that not to get into the, could this team play today or today's team play yesterday, but that a team like the Showtime Lakers would, would be just fine today because if you really want to run, you, you can always run. Sure. Um, a few more things uh, about Russell and, and kind of the revolutionary impact that um, he had. Um, uh, he was the first NBA player to dunk regularly, at least according to uh, Slater Martin, uh, who was a, uh, a Lakers and Hawks uh, star in the uh, 50s. Um, it, it, you know, guys could dunk before that, but it was really kind of the, the dunk was kind of considered a show offy type thing where yeah. if you, you know, if you you would basically get get knocked on your ass later if you if you were dunking but it was kind of bit more accepted for Russell uh, maybe because his limited arsenal especially at first he did, he didn't uh, score many other ways um he did improve in that um as his career advanced although obviously his field goal percentage was notoriously um was notoriously low um and in uh he was the the NCA changed the rules for him first widening the lane um which actually ended up helping him um, and hurting slower play, slower players, but helped him because he, um, um, you know, could uh, he had the speed, you know, kind of negated the uh, issue for that. And then they eventually yeah. outlawed offensive goaltending as well. Um, and then Russell, in, when he first joined the air, was the NBA was accused by the Warriors uh, owner of um, goaltending and playing a one man zone, basically just um, uh, you know uh, was there's a lot of just fear of change and a lot of um, like, Oh, you know, we can't let this guy, um, he, you know, do this to our game or, 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 or what have you. And, and there's a lot of, you know, this has to do with, um, you, you know, a, a, a fear and agonizing by a, you know, mostly white uh, basketball culture of yeah. the rise of black superstars and, um, and, and Russell really the first black superstar to, um, you know, to, uh, to be in the NBA and to, uh, really, um, you, you know, put, put his, uh, mark on the league and, um, and, and how they shaped the game late in the fifties and into, um, into the sixties with, you know, just to come a completely different style, um, more of a, you know, open fast break game. If we've talked about the, um, you know, adding sort of individual flair was no longer taboo. And, um, you know, and it was, it was just kind of a, a freer, looser, um, you know, uh, changed game. And, you know, obviously, uh, 
with the, the African-American superstars that were, you know, that came into the game like Baylor, Oscar Robertson, um, uh, Sam Jones, Hal Greer. Um, they, they all kind of, you know, put like a different kind of template um, into the game and in, in, in how kind of how they changed the way that the game was played. Yeah, and I think they deserve the credit, obviously, because I think, you know, going back to when we talk about basketball history, and I'm the same way. I'm not uh, excluding myself here where I kind of picture basketball history, even though I shouldn't, I picture it starting with, say, the late 50s, early 60s. And that's because I think of Russell, Chamberlain, Baylor, West, Oscar, that they were such dominant forces, such game-changing players that they really, they didn't invent, you know, modern NBA, but gosh, they just, they deserve so much credit for making the game, you know, bringing it from this league that had started, as we said, wasn't in the NBA in the late forties and even through the fifties. And obviously the fifties there, it was primarily, you know, the dominant players, the scoring champions would be, you know, Paul Arizon, Joel Folks, like we mentioned, uh, George Yardley, certainly Bob Pettit deserves a lot of credit for also being a revolutionary figure as a big man who shot the jump shot. But it's those you know African American players in the early '60s who really completely revolutionized the game and were so good that they are the guys that oh yeah when we think about basketball history that's kind of for so many people at least for myself that's almost like the starting point is when those guys were taking over the league. Yeah, I, yeah, right. I mean that that's sort of the the easy way to kind of mentally remember the league is is starting with the the uh, the Celtics dynasty. I mean, just because it's the kind of the first um, you know big story that has kind of a modern connection to um, the past that it just kind of makes the game like understandable. I mean, obviously a lot has changed since the '60s, but you can watch '60s basketball. And and it's it, it's mostly recognizable. Obviously, without the three pointer, it's different. And, and you know there are different skills being established in different levels of athleticism and bodies and a lot of things. But you know it's much more recognizable than a game from the early fifties, where it's yeah. it, it, sometimes it's almost hard to kind of tell tell what you're watching. Um, <laughs> so it's yeah. So I think it's just something that we have an easier. Uh, connection with and um and you know there were you know better um players playing and playing in a style that is more recognizable to what we um can see today you you know who were um you know um I liked that you brought up um Sam Jones of the Celtics and um Hal Greer of the Nationals and 76ers when they moved um you know those are two guys who I think are are sort of under discussed in the uh, 60s but they both were really great um players who happened to kind of play behind um Jerry West and Oscar Robertson the you know two of the premier guards obviously of all time and of their era um you know what did you kind of learn about them and and find interesting about them Yeah that they were a lot of fun to write about because like you said there were the you know the all nba players of the 60s from the guards it was going to be oscar and west and jones and greer were you know a step below them and red arback he he talked about how when he was talking about sam jones he said you know jones isn't he's not jerry west and oscar robertson his all-around game um certain aspects he wasn't at their level but as far as shooting red said he would take him you know against anyone and both of those guys were so instrumental to their teams and Jones of course obviously and that's kind of what I write about is how that decade so defined by Wilt and Russell 
And then, you know, the two guys that just dominated the league and from 57 through 73, even it's one of those guys or it's Kareem with the Bucks. It's a big guy winning the title. And the exception, but the difference was so many times you had a jump shot that kind of played a huge role. And so many times it was Sam Jones, um, 69 game four with the Celtics trailing 2-1 about to go down 3-1 and he hits the shot at the buzzer to win it uh he hit the winning shot in the 62 series against you know tormented Wilt to send him into the finals and then a missed shot by Frank Selvey of course in game seven of the 1962 finals that if he hits the Lakers win and kind of changes history in a lot of ways um so you had a jump shot changing so many things in that decade. And Jones was so often just obviously in game sevens was when, when he kind of made his mark, especially. And even in 1969, it was fascinating reading about the Celtics were obviously on their last legs, Russell and Sam Jones, especially they, that was their final season. And they both from every account that you read, they were playing like old guys, you know, they were really just struggling to get through the season. Sure. And Sam Jones had quotes during the regular season where he was kind of upset with the Celtics, you know, rushing him back from an injury. He had leg injuries. He couldn't move like he could, you know, used to. But they were just trying to get to those finals. And then once they did, they, again, somehow pulled it out. And he was really unappreciated. Even it took him way too long to get in the Hall of Fame. It took into the mid-'80s. And uh, Bob Ryan wrote a column in around 1980 asking, you know, why is Sam Jones not in the Hall of Fame? And Hal Greer was in the same boat. It took him way too long to get in the Hall of Fame after he retired. Um, you know, his career unfortunately ended with the horrific 76ers team that won nine games. But throughout that decade, he was so consistent. I think that's the word that you just always read so often that from 15 feet, he was always going to knock in a shot. He shot his free throws with a jump shot. So the yeah. jumper was really a part of his game. I love that. And then the, when Wilt of course, won his first title with the Sixers. Greer led the team in scoring in the playoffs, and obviously Wilt was the dominant force, but Greer was such an underrated part of that team, and it was fun writing about them because with so many big figures that we talked about and personalities, Wilt Russell, but then also Oscar and West, that those two really do, I think, get lost to history. So it was fun writing about them and just how their games and the jump shots not only affected their careers, but also basketball history. Yeah, to to me, like if you want to kind of make modern analogs for Jones in Greer, I I was for Jones, I always kind of think Monte Ginobili, and for Greer, for Tony Parker, um, mm. like I feel like as far as kind of skill level and roles, not necessarily how they played, but um, but Jones was this you know you know this this great shooting guard who you know matched up with anybody, but kind of played limited minutes and stepped up in big moments but wasn't the day-to-day superstar and Greer was kind of you know more just you know more steady more you know hit just you know picked his spots again not quite like an elite player but a you know very good um player who was a you know a a key cog and even carried it sometimes um uh you know very good teams I I kind of feel like those are you if you're a modern fan and never heard of you know or doesn't know much about either guy I feel like those are are decent parallels modern parallels that you can be like you know that's kind of where they were in the NBA during their time and of course Sam Jones the famous bank shot that's even if people didn't know a lot about his career that's what you'd hear about it it was interesting reading old stories about him where he would talk about his bank shot and you know that's something a lot of times you'll today you'll hear again old timers you know no one's got the bank shot no one no one shoots it like Sam Jones used to, uh, even though guys like Duncan, Wade, 
uh, Pippen used it very sure. effectively. Kobe did. But the interesting thing to me was reading stories from back then that said, well, no one was doing it before him really either or as he was playing. It's not like it was a golden era of guys shooting off the glass. It was something that Sam Jones was great at and set him apart during his time. And then also in the decades afterwards, it was so effective that people kind of call it a you know a Sam Jones bank shot. It, it became an adjective but it wasn't something like the you know the bank shot kind of died when you know if you will when he left but it's not like it, it was this golden shot before that he was really revolutionary with that shot which Red Arback also talked about although interestingly when I had a chance to talk to Bob Ryan um, he said Rudy Tomjanovic had the best bank shot from long distance uh, that he'd ever seen even huh. much better than Jones but huh. Jones from anywhere else on the court was just so effective with that shot sure yeah that's interesting um uh that's neat um is there you know in in doing your um you doing all the research you did for the book and looking at you know all the players that you did are, are are there any that just really like stood out and were like wow this is just amazing or this is really fascinating or or, or something that really stands out of you know any player that you kind of looked at in, in all the different eras you checked out there's different stories, you know, one, some of the stories that I enjoyed the most were players that, you know, we haven't heard, or especially, you know, I didn't know a lot before I started. And one name that really stands out to me in the book was Travis Grant, um, had a very brief NBA career, uh, four or five seasons, was drafted by the champion Lakers in 72, but really didn't play much with them. And then had a couple of good years in the ABA with uh, Wilt actually as his coach, but his college career was absolutely amazing that NAIA Kentucky State won three straight national titles and when he left school he was the all-time uh, leading scorer in all of college basketball whether it was NCAA or NAIA he had scored more than Pistol Pete um, and everyone talked about every story they called his nickname was the machine and a lot of it was because of his jump shot they said from say 18 feet he was just automatic and he never shot below 60% in all his four seasons that he played, which is a remarkable stat. He shot over 70% one season. So reading a story about him, and he was one of those guys that during that era of the 70s where they would shoot 40 times a game, but he kind of set himself apart by hitting a high percentage. So he's someone that really stood out to me as someone whose story I didn't you know, necessarily know. Um, and then I really you know, I enjoyed writing about the guys in the 80s, the great small forwards who – didn't use a three-pointer, even though they could have. The, sh the line was there, but uh, Bernard King, Alex English, uh, Mark Aguirre, Purvis Short, and his rainbow jumper. It was really fun reading about those guys, watching old clips, and, and talking to some of them. So it, it was a lot of the guys who aren't necessarily the superstars, although I write a lot about them. You know, I have a chapter about Bird. Uh, but it was some of those guys who maybe people don't know about as much that I really enjoyed writing about. So, yeah, another guy that um, I, I found really interesting was um, Frank Selvey, who, you know, I, I really all I knew was, you know, he missed the shot in the uh, 62 finals for the Lakers. But, you know, he was the um, I, I believe the first to score 100 points in a NCAA game, uh, making the final shot near the near midcourt at the buzzer. Uh, and, you know, was on his way to a pretty good NBA career before, I, I believe, an injury struck. Yeah, he was. 
like you said, unfortunately, he's kind of known even today as, as the guy who missed the shot that could have changed basketball history in 1962. But he was the first player to average, uh, well, even thir- no one averaged 30 before, and then he averaged over 40 uh, in college. Bob Pettit averaged 30 that same season. So he really, with his shot, was really ahead of his time in the college game. Goes into the NBA, has a really good rookie year. Uh, newspapers are talking about how you know this great shooter that's coming to the league. And then, unfortunately, a series of injuries. And then he missed uh, several seasons because he was called into the service. Uh, again, one of those things that when we, when we consider basketball history, comparing it today is so hard because guys aren't losing two years in their prime to go serve in the military. And he comes back, and he also said he got injured during his time in the service, knee injuries, and a story in the, I believe, is the Sporting News talked about how Frank Selvey had lost his jump shot because his knees, and he had lost, you know, the ability to use his legs in a shot. And once Selvey kind of lost his great jump shot, he was no longer going to be a superstar, unfortunately, but still had a very, very nice uh, career as a role player but is one of those kind of what if players where if, if he doesn't get hurt, you know, he might've been one of the really great shooters of the sixties. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always a thin margin, you know, it's like, um, you know, from, from being, you know, one of the greats to, or, or, you know, being very good to being pretty good at, at least, um, you know, it just takes a little bit of a slip of, you know, athleticism or, or, or something going on. It can really, you know, uh, change the course of someone's career in the course of NBA history. Um, and, and that's, I guess, Elgin Baylor, another one. Obviously, he had a yeah. tremendous career, but everyone still talks about how unfortunate it was that his leg injuries kind of robbed him in the latter stage of his career of, of just took away. He would have been even better, which is hard to fathom. But. Right. Yeah. And how hard he had to work to kind of overcome the the knee injuries just to be able to, um, you know, play effectively in the second half of his career. I mean, he, you know, looked for a while he was done. I mean, he really like worked through and worked hard and strengthened that knee and it, you know, it, it was not responding well. It was looking like he might be done he had a you know rough few months and then was able to kind of come through and you know and still achieve a lot in the uh you know last four or five years um you know before he started to really break down in the early 70s um so uh, so yeah i mean that, that that makes a big difference too but even to accomplish what he did was pretty remarkable yeah and there's i think it was you that tweeted um or you guys your account the it was a number i hadn't really thought about before it was just fascinating to me the number of was it players who played over the age of like 36 or seven? Yes. And from the, you know, how, what that number was say in the eighties, even in the nineties and then what it is today. And that was just eye opening to me. And I, I guess I should have known that and kind of knew it on some level, but had never really thought of it so concretely or seen it in that. And that really, I think also when we're talking about basketball history is another thing you have to take into consideration with those guys from back then that their careers were, they weren't going to be playing, certainly not effectively, even playing at all into their late 30s. So they had very short time frame to get things done. Yeah, and obviously they're also starting their career later because you know no yeah. one until the 70s is leaving early from college. So it, yeah, it just completely narrows that window for um, you know for for a lot of players with you know with rare exceptions being able to play you know more than more than 12 13 years and almost no one did up until the um up until the late 70s and 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 into the 80s and then yeah once the 90s and especially the 2000s now it's much more common 
And it is, you know, there's a great story a couple months ago, um, I think it was ESPN.com, about travel in today's NBA. And it's still obviously a very grueling thing just because the human body traveling that amount takes such a toll. But it is, it, it kind of makes those numbers from back then even more incredible when you see whether it's Wilt, Russell, Oscar, these guys playing 45, you know, obviously Wilt famously, but even the other guys were averaging 44 minutes and playing 80 games a season. And when you consider what their travel was back then, it's again, which makes it so hard to compare errors because it's just two completely different worlds. Yeah. And they're playing, you know, back to back to backs. Um, You know, it's a more (laughs) compressed schedule Uh, and, you know, Hey, they're playing a faster pace, which I think is, harder to do i mean it re- it requires more energy it requires um you, you know it, it just it's more physically enduring to play faster i think for you know an entire game than it is to um uh than it is to you know play even a modern you know faster pace than it was in the 90s is still you know um less taxing i think overall now you know maybe you're giving away giving up some of that on on the defensive end so maybe you know it's closer yeah. overall than we think, but still, I mean, that's, you know, I, I think that is, um, I, I think that's something as well. And that, you know, talking about the different eras and you might've already discussed this with, with the Russell talk, but I was just thinking about it today with, you know, you'll still hear people say winning eight in a row, winning 11. Well, it was easier back then because there were so few teams. There's eight, nine teams in the league. And, you know, when I was a kid, like I said, as a Lakers fan, as I wanted to denigrate Celtics history, I, I think I had that argument too. Like, wow, well, you know, that it was a different league. That would never happen today. But I was thinking of it today, and gosh, think if there were eight teams in the league today, and we had the Warriors like they are, you had the Spurs like they are, but say Duncan's in his prime on the Spurs team. You have Oklahoma City with Durant and Westbrook. The East, you have LeBron and that Cavs team. To me, I can't picture... Every year, you know, Golden State and San Antonio are going to face each other. The idea of one of those teams winning eight titles in a row is even harder to picture because not that the Warriors, quote-unquote, got lucky, Doc Rivers, last year, but the fact was, you know, they didn't have to face the Spurs or, you know, Thunder like that. Where where it's a smaller league, you're going to have to face that other super team. And that, to me, it really put into, you know, just painted a picture of, not that it wasn't, not that I didn't consider it impressive before, but when I was thinking of a team today in an eight-team league winning eight in a row, winning 11 in 13 years, I can't picture any team from today being able to pull that off. So to me, that just shows how impressive it was back then. I don't think the fact that it was a smaller league takes away from what they did. You know, As I've kind of gotten older and more appreciative maybe of that era, it makes it even more impressive to me. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I that, that's a good point. I hadn't really kind of considered it in that way. But, um, I mean, yeah, you, it, it's just hard to imagine compressing the talent we have in the NBA now into eight teams and what, what incredible teams those would be. But then again, like what um, – you know, certain players wouldn't have the freedom of opportunity that they have. They wouldn't have the, you know, Jimmy Butler probably wouldn't become a superstar if, um, you know, he's drafted into an 18 league because he's behind, you know, um, he's, he's the fifth guard on that team and he probably doesn't get the yeah. shots that he has if he's, you know, uh, in a, uh, in the league that he's in now. So it's, yeah, there's so many things to kind of consider with that, but I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, it's harder to dodge a team that's just a really tough matchup or, you know, a, a really elite team that, 
matches up with you because you know it's a smaller league it's just harder to avoid that it, you know it's it's if the teams happen to be stocked stocked in one conference or you know it can happen but um but yeah i mean the there's a reason why um the celtics were going through the lakers are going through wilt pretty much every year and those yeah. were generally the best teams that they had to play or the, or the hawks early on in their um in, in that run i mean that's you know um they were and you t- you know, today one thing obviously you know they'll say well you have to play more seriously and that's true but how often in the nba do you really see and how many first round huge upsets it it just really doesn't happen. It's always, that's the thing with the best of seven or best of, even in the best of five years, you didn't see it a lot where it is the best team wins. So even if those Celtics teams, you know, would have had to play an extra round, I don't know. I don't, I want to see them being upset in an earlier round. So I, I don't know if that extra first round, especially carries much more weight because most of the championship teams, the 07 Mavericks being an obvious exception, but if you're a great team, you're just not losing in the first round. Yeah, it's 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 certainly harder. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, it is such a um, yeah, it's a different environment. It's hard to compare, but I, I think you you definitely bring up some some very good points there. Uh, so before we go, anything else you uh, you'd like to talk about? No, I mean, just it's great that you're doing this on Russell because you know, obviously he's not going to say unappreciated because I think everyone does appreciate what, what he is and does. But I think sometimes whether it is the eight titles in a row um, or people, whether people talk about his offensive skills, not being, you know, he wasn't a Olajuwon on the offensive end or anything. It, it can kind of maybe overshadow the greatness that he was, whether it was defensively or just how ahead of his time he was with leaving the court and his basketball genius. So I think it's great to have this discussion about someone that there's not, you know, it's, as the years go by, there's going to be fewer and fewer of us who had the chance to see him play live. So it's great that he can, he'll still be and all those guys from that era, of course, but someone who was so dominant that he, he's still vital today and still in the, in the discussion. Yeah. And I, you know, I think part of the, our goal for this is to obviously, you know, explore why he's great. I mean, everyone knows that he's great, but to explore the kind of the reasons why, you know, he was so effective, just how, trend-setting and game-changing he really was beyond the beyond the greatness and then also kind of get to know him better as a personality and as a man um because you know we, we tend to look back at the legends and we you know it, it's it's impossible to know everything about anyone you know or you know a lot about anyone unless you really study and there's so many subjects to study that it's it's hard to um you, you just kind of get that base knowledge and he's like this you know he's this he's this you know one of the he'd be one of the four people on nba's mount rushmore so to kind of take him from being you know the statue that you know that all with all this glory is heaped upon um you know which he deserves but to go beyond that and to just kind of see the you know the, the depth of who he was and what he meant to the league and how the league changed because of him and because of the the celtics i think that's yeah, all uh, definitely uh, ripe for ex- exploration. So we're we're happy to do it. We're glad people um, are, um, are are listening. We're very glad to have you and other really smart people uh, come join us and to uh, explore the game and, and and the rich history of the game. And so it's a lot of fun for us. Yeah, like you said, his on court part is just one facet of of why he was so important and and so fascinating too. Because the off the court was you know just as vital. So it, it's just great to explore that as well. Definitely. So. All right. Well, um, so where can people uh, get your book? Uh, any 
of their local bookstore, whether it's a Barnes and Noble or a Books a Million or their local independent bookstore, uh, hopefully carries it or will carry it if if you ask them. And then certainly online, um, whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble's website, um, other online retailers uh, should have it available. Yes, and, and for those who have forgotten, it's called Rise and Fire, and uh, and John Fury is the author. You should definitely. Uh, Check it out. Uh, thank you, Sean, again for uh, being on the show. And, thanks for having me. It was yeah. a lot of fun. And uh, thanks, everyone, for uh, listening. We greatly appreciate it. You can find us on uh, Facebook and Twitter at Over and Back NBA. Uh, you can find our show at harborparoxysm.com. We're part of the HP network of podcasts. You can find uh, Over and Back both on um, both on iTunes and on Stitcher, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review, preferably a good one. And um, until uh, next time, uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.